Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to Branching Out, an upbeat, friend-building, Christian-uniting ministry. We discuss topics concerning our faith, review Christian news, do a devotional, and offer prayers and praise that you share with us. Never be alone. Join us. You can reach us at our website, which is branchliving.com, or through Facebook at Branch Living. There we have an international community, and it would be a privilege to have you join us. You can comment there, post photos, prayer requests, praise reports. So join us on Facebook at Branch Living. You can also email your prayer requests and praise reports to me at Lisa, that's L-I-S-A, at branchliving.com. We podcast about twice a week, and the heart of our podcast is our Branch Living message. We chat about issues in our lives, and then we move to Christian news, views, events, interesting happenings in today's Christian family. We have a brief devotion written by one of the Christian greats. Right now we are focusing on Spurgeon, and we end with your comments, your prayers, and your praise. So join us and spread the word. We would love to hear from you. And with that, let us join the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time set apart where we can focus on your message and on your word. And we can unite together and think about the issues that are important in our Christian faith. This time away from all the noise in the world. We ask you to be each one of be with each one of us today and um, as we go about our week, but especially, Lord, illumine our thoughts to your Holy Spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen. So today, rather than starting off with the Branch Living message, I am going to start off with a blog that I read because I think it kind of nicely um, moves into the message today. And the blog is from a website um, called thekingandhiskingdom.com. And the title of this particular blog, and it is uncategorized, so I can't tell you who it is from, but you can see it there. Um, And it is dated on uh, March 5th. And the name of it is The King and His Kingdom. Again, that's the name of the blog. And the article is The Powerlessness of Positive Thinking. I'm going to say that again, The Powerlessness of Positive Thinking. And I just found this to be so interesting because I've talk to people about, um, you know, things like the optimist clubs and other clubs, and and they're wonderful in terms of what they do in communities, but um, always ask, you know, what is the why behind the optimism they have? Why are they optimistic? Because it's one thing to feel very positive about the future, um, but that positivity really needs to be rooted in something. And with those discussions and those thoughts, um, that led me to just really appreciating the way that this blog is written. The world has always been a scary place, even before the events of the past year. We have always faced challenges, both as a society and as individuals. One popular philosophy for dealing with these challenges has been positive thinking. Just find a silver lining in whatever situation you're facing. Always take the optimistic approach Just have a good attitude and choose to be happy. While Norman Vincent Peale wrote a book called The Power of Positive Thinking, I'm talking about a much broader idea of positive thinking that appeared in most self-help books, both Christian and secular. Positivity and optimism appeal to secular audiences, but they can be equally appealing to Christians if you slap a verse on them, like Philippians 4.4, 
Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And I'm going to pause there and just say, I do think that that is a very valid critique of um, how many Christians move secular ideas and secular philosophy into the church because we can create a bridge with scripture often. And instead of letting scripture be kind of the launching pad to the thought, we back into scripture by taking the thought into Christianity. And um, that is always a dangerous path and one that we should all be uh, on guard for. So he, going back to this positive thinking, this brand of positivity is a counterfeit version of the hope, joy, and peace found in Christ, but it can be hard to tell the difference. In optimistic times, that is. I have not seen a lot of cheap positivity online these days. Most people are actively complaining about what a terrible year we have all had. And even if we could see a silver lining in something, we are quick to acknowledge that it has been a very hard year. It's become normal in every conversation to have a bit of despair and depression over lockdowns, politics, or even weather. Positive thinking is not so hard when your biggest challenge in life is meeting your fitness goals or overcoming a difficult problem at work. But in a world of chaos, fear, and darkness, look at the bright side can seem a bit shallow. To someone who is tired of being stuck at home, it is just annoying. To someone who has lost a loved one, it is just plain insensitive. And that is how the fires of hardship separate paper-thin positive thinking from rock-solid gospel hope. I'm going to say that again. And that is how the fires of hardship separate paper-thin positive thinking from rock-solid gospel hope. Positive thinking says if you just dig deeper enough in yourself, you will find strength to conquer anything. The gospel says when you have no strength left, God will sustain you. Positive thinking looks to goodness and creation to solve immediate problems. The gospel looks to the creator to solve eternal problems. Positive thinking holds up in everyday struggles in the deepest and darkest, when the deepest and darkest times offer very little. The gospel, however, shines brighter than ever in deep darkness. Um, so let me say that again. Positive thinking holds up in everyday struggles, but not in the deepest and darkest times when they offer very little. The gospel, however, shines brighter than ever in the deep darkness. When the world is so weighted down with anxiety, weariness, and despair, it can feel insensitive to be cheerful and hopeful. And if we are cheerful and hopeful because our circumstances are better than our neighbors, well, that's just plain insensitive. But if we are hopeful because we have a firm faith in a good and just God, that is not just fluffy optimism. Instead of choosing between optimism and pessimism, we can have joyful realism. We can acknowledge grief and yet hope in Christ. We can weep with those who weep and yet rejoice in Christ. We can be of good cheer in the midst of trials, knowing that our Savior has overcome the world. We can mourn and grieve death and sickness, and yet, place our firm hope in an eternal inheritance better than anything we have in this life. 
in a sense, the gospel positivity on the gospel is positivity on steroids because the positive fact of goodness God infinitely outweighs the negativity of anything in this world. So I'm going to say that again. In a sense, the gospel is positivity on steroids because the positive fact of the goodness of God infinitely outweighs the negativity of evil in the world. And knowing his infinite goodness frees us to fully acknowledge the evil of the world instead of pretending it's not there. We are free to mourn and lament all of the pain in this world because our hope rests in Christ, not in how much optimism we can muster up. And I just want to say amen to that because uh, so often I hear people uh, quote these very trite expressions about, you know, put your chin up and things are going to get better and there's always a brighter tomorrow. But that is just so shallow when you look at evil in the world and when you look at despair in the world. And really the only solution is God and God's goodness and knowing that there is more than, than all of that in this world. You know, that not just that fluffy optimism, but we serve a good and just God. And um, that joyful realism, I love that expression, joyful realism that the world contains evil, that it contains hardship, that it contains despair, but that we have a God that has overcome all of that who is with us at all times. So amen. So our Branch Living message today uh, focuses on relationship and it focuses on mediation. And so, you know, the world is so divided. Families are divided. Co-workers are at odds. Neighbors are in conflict. And what are Christians to do? One great tool to have in your relational tool belt, tool belt is mediation. And I go to the scripture passage, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Mediation is a tool for peacemakers. It can be used with groups of people or with two people in conflict. One cautionary note, mediation is only effective when people feel safe when they are honest and when they want a fair and good solution. If one or more parties truly seeks to do harm to another person or is manipulative, mediation is not the right tool. Joanne Preston is the author of a book that's going to be out soon called Lead the Way in Five Minutes a Day. And she outlines steps to use when mediating two people in conflict. And here are the steps that she suggests. The first one is to set the stage. Be clear that the conflict cannot continue and that the two parties are the only ones that can fix it. The mediator should state something like, I believe you can fix this and I'm going to do my best to help you. So again, you don't get involved in the conflict. You are simply there to be able to bring the sides together and they have to come up with the solutions. Number two, establish clear ground rules. And I love the question that Ms. Preston poses in this step, and that is, what are some guidelines that would help everyone feel safer to speak up here? She notes that if no one speaks up, then you need to, as the mediator, suggest a few good ground rules. And then third, clearly define the problem. And the goal of this step has three components. First, define the core problem and focus on observable behaviors, not just judgments. Two, have each party state what they want or need from the other person. And three, 
ask each party to own some part of responsibility in the conflict. Preston notes that as discussion progresses, listen for and give voice to common ground. If talks don't progress, ask each party, what will the cost be to you if you cannot resolve this? And I think that's so important when we're talking about relationships because so oftentimes we focus on the problem, but we don't focus on the cost of the problem continuing. The mediator must focus each party on the future. Preston urges the mediator to ask each party to talk specifically about how each will contribute to making the future working relationship better. The parties don't have to agree to like each other, but they do have to agree on how they will treat each other and how they will act in each other's presence. So again, this is good at work, but these are also good in friendships, in churches, in a variety of environments, because so often what happens when two people are at loggerheads and at odds, it spreads into the rest of the church, it spreads into the rest of the family, it spreads into the rest of the group. Um, again, if people want good solutions and they don't want to be nasty and mean to people, but they're at a point where they just see things differently, mediation is a great tool. Lastly, Preston states, close the loop. Have each party state in specific terms what they will do in the future. Don't deal in generalities. Have them specifically state what their actions will look like to the others. Uh, Preston offers some tips for the person serving as the mediator. Don't listen to one side privately. And I was talking to somebody this week, having uh, just written this blog, and was saying, you know, mediation is a great tool, and was starting to say, talk about kind of the steps that I was writing about in this book. And I mentioned that, you know, not listening to one side privately. And she said, oh my gosh, that is exactly what has been going on in this one civic organization she's been in. She said, you know, this person's been getting half of the story and not the other half. And so it's so important as a mediator that you don't have these sideline conversations, again, in a church, in a family, in an organization. Um, and this one is tough, but model a calm presence and use active listening. If anyone gets overwhelmed, take a break. Don't come up with solutions. As the mediator, your job is simply to create a safe space, keeping the parties focused on the solutions in the future and guiding the people to the rules that they agree to. So that's just a snippet of Preston's book and it will well be worth the read. In terms of mediating groups of individuals who are in disagreement, one technique I have used successfully, I learned from a news broadcast. Strange source, but this is a great technique. The news broadcasters had groups of people who were in polar opposite viewpoints. And uh, he, he asked the individuals to state factually the events they had witnessed one sentence at a time. So after each sentence, the person recounting the event had to pause and ask anyone, and the mediator said, can anybody raise a, any hand, raise your hand if you disagree with that account? So sentence by sentence, they went through what they remembered happened, and they asked the people on both sides, raise your hand if you disagree with that sentence. So they would discuss this, the facts objectively until they reached agreement that that is what took place. And if they didn't agree on that, they made a note of that and moved to the next point. 
So I've used this and I have found it to be very revealing because often we think we remembered what happened in an event or in an encounter, but when we recount it step by step and others give their recounting, we often find we don't remember the event completely accurately. And we might, in our memory, leave out details that did take place and are key to how others are viewing the event. By stripping the emotion out of the event and recalling the facts of the event, bringing all the facts to the table, it can give us the ability to see the event through others' eyes. And oftentimes this alone creates empathy. Christ calls his followers to be peacemakers. We need to follow his calling. The Bible offers a few key words of advice for reflection before you attempt to resolve conflict. And here are a few of the verses that I find particularly helpful. The first one is from Proverbs 15:1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. From Proverbs 15:5. The soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. From Proverbs 15, 8, 18, a hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. So I think this is a clear calling for us to be God's presence and to be peacemakers in this world in as much as that is possible. So amen to that. Um, I'm going to move now to our devotion today. And again, we are reading from Spurgeon. And the scripture passage is from Acts 14, 22. We must, through much tribulation, enter in the kingdom of God. God's people have their trials. It was never designed by God when he chose his people that they should be an untried people. They were chosen in the furnace of affliction. They were never chosen to worldly peace and earthly joy. Freedom from sickness and the pains of mortality was never promised to them. But when their Lord drew up the charter of privileges, he included chastisements among the things to which they should inevitably be, hit, be heirs. Trials are part of our lot. They were predestined for us in God's solemn decrees and bequeathed to us in Christ's last legacy. So surely, as the stars are fashioned by his hands and their orbits fixed by him, so surely are our trials allotted to us. He has ordained their season and their place and their intensity and the effect that they shall have upon us. Good men must never expect to escape troubles. If they do, they will be disappointed, for none of their predecessors have ever been without them. Mark the patience of Job. Remember Abraham, for he had his trials, and by his faith under them he became the father of the faithful. Note well the biographies of all of the patriarchs, the prophets, the apostles, the martyrs, and you shall discover that none of those whom God made vessels of mercy were not made to pass through the fire of affliction. It is ordained of old that the cross of trouble should be engraved on every vessel of mercy as the royal mark whereby the king's vessel of honor are distinguished. But although tribulation is thus the path of God's children, they have comfort in knowing that their maker, that their master has traversed it before them 
they have his presence and sympathy to cheer them, his grace to support them, his example to teach them how to endure. And when they reach the kingdom, it will more than make amends for the much tribulation through which they passed to enter it. So amen to that. We should never expect a life of ease um, because we, are, we belong to Christ. If uh, anything, we should expect the opposite. Um, but having joy, um, that joyful resilience because Christ is with us in each of those tribulations. And thank you to Spurgeon again for his great words. Uh, so we're, I'm going to end with prayer. Um, before I do end with prayer, I want to remind you of the Bible study that we have on Tuesdays at 7 Central, um, American 7, 7 Central. And if you are interested in joining us, even just to try it out, just email me at lisa at branchliving.com and I would be happy to send you the link for the Bible study. Um, we are in the book of John and Jesus is just uh, entering Jerusalem. So we are in kind of a very intense period here. Um, but it's a wonderful Bible study to be part of. And again, we just take it at our own pace. So in terms of prayers, I'm just going to um, mention this prayer for a, a Cambodian uh, Christian lawyer. And this comes to us from Christianity Today. Christian lawyer charged with treason. Christian activist and human rights lawyer Thera Sang is facing treason charges in Cambodia. Sang came to the U.S. as a child refugee from the Khmer Rouge killing fields sponsored by the Christian Reformed Church. She converted to Christianity in America, translated the Bible into Khmer, and returned to Cambodia to work toward Christian vision of justice and reconciliation. She has criticized the Prime Minister and supported a pro-democracy party which was banned in 2017. She is one of more than 60 activists charged. Most have fled the country, but Seng is staying to fight. So we must lift um, these great Christian heroes up in prayer. So would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we had together. We thank you for reminding us that you are the source of our joy and you are the source of our optimism, that we are going to face trials and tribulations but that we should have joyful resiliency as we pass through them, knowing that the kingdom ahead will remove those terrible tribulations, will remove those times of trial, that you will wipe every tear, and that this will all be to the betterment of our character and to the joy of the kingdom ahead. We ask you to bless these strong Christians who are in peril, um, such as the young woman we just mentioned, uh, Ms. Singh from Cambodia as she seeks to better the world and to advance the Christian message in Cambodia. We ask you to be with all of the Christians who are facing these times of tribulation and we ask you to be with each of us uh, to represent our faith well and to uh, do our part in leading people to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So it's been a pleasure again to be with you today. And until we get together again, stay close to God, stay in touch, and I will chat with you again soon.